sung for us this morning the words of our text in Luke chapter 1, beautiful, beautiful song of Mary's praise and adoration to God for what He has done for her. We, uh, we're often asked at, uh, at various times why we sing the music that we do, how we choose the music that we choose, things of that nature, and I want to give you just a little bit of the criteria that is used related to our music. First of all, we want to be certain that the music we sing as a congregation is scripturally sound. That, that means that it is filled with meaning of Scripture, so that we are singing the Word of God to one another, in essence. We also require that it be theologically rich. In other words, that it proclaim the truth of who God is and what God has done. And then, of course, as a third criteria, we want to be certain that what we sing as a congregation is God-centered rather than man-centered. It's, in other words, not singing about me. It is singing about God and who He is and even what He has done in our lives, but it's centered upon His mercy and upon His power, and it is in all things edifying to Jesus, and it lifts up the name of Jesus. Because there's a promise in the Word of God that Jesus made, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so we want to be certain in what we sing that we lift up Jesus. With that criteria in mind, we look at our text this morning in Luke chapter 1, and we find a beautiful example of a song that does just that. The song that's been sung for us this morning is a song that is taken from the words of this Scripture, and it is a beautiful example to us in the first chapter here in Luke's Gospel of what we look for in what we sing as a congregation. We have this beautiful display for us of Mary's song after she has been told that she will bear the Son of God, the Messiah. With your Bibles open, look at Luke chapter 1, and, and let's just lay down the, the foundation for this and look at the verses that precede the song that was sung and that we heard read earlier. In Luke chapter 1, verse 39, we read, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped within her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let me give you just a reminder this morning of an outline of the events that we have encountered so far in the Gospel of Luke as we've been making our way through this first chapter. You'll remember that at the beginning I shared with you that in the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi, as God spoke to him and gave the promise that, that, that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings, a promise of the Messiah to come, a promise that God's redemptive purpose will be fulfilled. 
And then after that prophecy, there is silence. For the next 400 years after this, we don't hear from God. We don't hear God in His prophetic statement towards His people, saying to them, proclaiming to Him what He will do and what He has done. They're silent. And then all of a sudden, onto the stage of human history, you have this priest by the name of Zechariah, and he is chosen to be offering incense in the temple in Jerusalem. And while he is there, this old priest, married to Elizabeth, advanced in years as well, unable to have children, an angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, the time of redemption is beginning, and you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a child a child who will be the forerunner of the Messiah who will prepare the way for him to come. And then after that, Gabriel appears to a, a young girl in Nazareth by the name of Mary. Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. But they've not entered into the marriage relationship, and so she is still a virgin, and yet the angel says, you will conceive in your womb. And a child is going to be born to you. He will be the Messiah, Gabriel shares with Mary. And he gives a sign to Mary saying that your cousin Elizabeth, advanced in years, also is expecting a child as well. And then the angel leaves for Mary. And then Mary now gets up and she travels into the hill country, we're told, with haste. And so she comes in a hurry. She wants to see Elizabeth. She has so much to share with Elizabeth and she wants to hear what's going on with Elizabeth as well. And so Mary makes this 70-mile this journey to visit with her cousin. And she comes to their home and there is a greeting that is exchanged for one another. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine what it would have been like for Mary to come into the home and to see Elizabeth there and to see that Elizabeth advanced in age with child? Six months earlier, Gabriel has told Zechariah they'll have a son and then has told Mary that Elizabeth is with child. So here she is six months later, obviously showing that she is pregnant. Mary enters into the room. Good heavens, it's just like the angel said. Here you are, old Elizabeth, and yet God has given you a child. And they began to share the stories with one another. Perhaps Mary began, I was in my room cleaning one day, and all of a sudden the angel Gabriel appeared. Oh yes, I've heard about that. Zechariah has written down for me that the angel Gabriel appeared to him as well. And then, uh, to share beyond that, Elizabeth, I was scared to death in his presence. Mary, I understand Zechariah was as well. He shared with me in writing. Elizabeth, he told me that I'm going to have a baby. I'm a virgin, but I'll have a child. And he told me that I am to name the child Jesus. And Elizabeth says, oh, that's exactly what John wrote, or what Zechariah wrote down for me, that we're going to have a child. And the angel said his name is to be John. And they compare the stories with one another back and forth. And somewhere within all of this, Elizabeth recounts that the baby inside of her leaped for joy at what was happening. 
not a normal kind of kicking and and moving that a child would do in the womb. You, you mothers with children know what that's like to feel the presence of that child within you. But there was something different about this. Here these two ladies are sharing stories with one another of the promise that the angel had given to them and to realize perhaps at, at a depth they've not realized even before now that the redemptive plan of God is near. The Messiah is soon to be born. The promise that God had given all the way back in the very beginning book of Genesis that there would be one who would break sin's curse. Now they begin to realize, here it comes. The Messiah is coming. Redemption is near. And in that revelation, Mary bursts forth into a song of praise and adoration of what the Lord was doing through her in the promise of this child. There have been those who have looked at Mary's song. We know it as the Magnificat for the opening verses. My soul magnifies the Lord. There have been many who have looked at this and said, no, this, this could not have been written by a, young, a, a teenage Jewish girl. It's much too rich. It's much too scriptural. Quotes from the Old Testament Psalms and the recounting of God's dealing with His people. No, it's much too rich for that. It's too theological, too scriptural. It's too heavy to have come from a young maiden like Mary. But here you have the mind of a young Jewish girl that had been soaked in the things of God and in the Word of God. And when this moment comes, it is understandable that it is the Word of God that would flow out of her heart and out of her mouth in singing praises for what God has done. It's not surprising to me at all that this would happen. A girl that had been trained literally from birth in the things of God I wonder so often if we sell our own children much too short in what they can learn, what they can believe, what they can know. Of course we do. We've brought our expectations down so low that we think it, uh, it less important to share with them the Word of God than everything else that goes on around them. We can learn much of worship in Mary's song of praise this morning. Look with me as we just walk through the verses together here and discover about our own hearts when it comes to, to this matter of worship. And notice in the opening few verses here, beginning in verse 46, the attitude of worship that we should have. And Mary said in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Look at the attitude that Mary displays when it comes to this notion of worship and what she does. We see, first of all, that true worship is internal. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When she uses those words, soul and spirit, a synonymous word, it, it indicates the totality of one's being. The whole inner person worship for us begins internally. It's starts within our heart. It begins with the, the knowledge of what God has done and who God is. True worship is an inside job. It begins internally as we focus on who God is, what God has done in history, and within our hearts and lives as well. 
There may be external things that prompt it, but worship primarily is internal. There may be a display of it outwardly, and indeed there will be. The worship that is within will come out in our lives, in singing, in praise, in worship, in prayer. We will see it externally, but only because it begins internally. True worship begins in the heart, and it involves all of your mind, all of your person, your emotions, your will, all brought together. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's so often that we make worship a matter of externals, don't we? We make matters of, of externality determinative of our worship. If the music is right, if the setting is right, if the comfort level is right, if the emotions are right, then we worship. We make, we make our worship contingent upon our emotions when we should make our emotions contingent upon our worship. And there is such a shallowness to much of worship that goes on today. It doesn't involve the totality of the inner person. It is something that's done merely externally. And Jesus spoke about this. Jesus spoke about our hearts being away from Him, even though we are going through the right motions externally, and people would think everything is right where it needs to be. Matthew chapter 15, listen to the words of Jesus when He spoke to the religious leaders of the day, and He said, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, the issue is not what's going on outside of you. The issue is where is your heart when it comes to worship? Is your heart engaged with the God of all creation, with the God who sustains us? Is your heart brought in submission to Him? True worship is internal. Beyond that, true worship is intense. Look at the words again that Mary uses in these verses. My soul magnifies the Lord. The word means to make great, it means to enlarge, it means to glorify, it means to make much of God. My soul magnifies Him, lifts Him up so that people see God in what I am doing, in what I'm saying. What do you make much of in your life? What do you brag about most? What do you point people to in your life? Mary says, my, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then she continues in the very next verse, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's an expression of supreme joy. Here is worship that is heartfelt, not artificial. It's God-focused, not self-focused. It's mental, not just emotional. It seeks to honor God, not manipulate God. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's interesting to see within this that true worship is, is something that is habitual as well. 
when Mary uses the word magnifies, when she uses the word rejoices. That, that word magnifies, it's the Greek word megaluno. It's in the present tense uh, verb form. It means continuous action. Mary says, my soul magnifies. My soul lifts God up and continually lifts Him up regardless of the circumstances in which I find myself. And let me ask you something. Mary is a young teenage girl engaged to be married. Do you think it was tough for her when she heard she was going to have a baby? A virgin conception? How are you going to explain that to people? How are you going to hold this up to people and say, no, nothing's happened? It was a virgin conception. An angel told me this. What would we do if we had been in that situation and, and some young girl from our community starts showing up with this story? What would we have said? This girl's nuts. This girl's crazy. What is going on here? They better get her some help. What would they have said about Joseph? You see, in, in this culture, for a young lady to be found to be pregnant in the betrothal time, Joseph could have divorced her. In fact, that's what we read he was willing to do, divorce her quietly. But you know what could have happened to her? Mary could have been put to death for adultery. Mary could have been put to death because of her sin. Do you think that this didn't jar her just a little bit? Do you think that maybe somehow she is not thinking? She has a 70-mile trip from Nazareth to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth's home. Do you think for a moment she's not making that trip and not thinking to herself, how do I explain this to people? How do I tell people what's going on? Is anybody going to believe me? Will my parents believe me? Will Joseph believe me? What am I going to do with this? And yet, in the midst of those circumstances, with this tremendous weight having been put upon her, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. See, friends, understand, a lesson we all need to learn. Maybe you don't need to learn. A lesson that I desperately need to learn is that circumstances should not affect true worship. Because God does not change, and He's the one we're worshiping. Our circumstances shouldn't affect our worship. Remember Paul and Silas back in the book of Acts? They, they, they come into the city of Philippi. They are arrested. They're thrown in prison, and we're told at midnight. Now listen, these prisons weren't, well, they weren't nice. I mean, our jails today aren't really nice, but man, they, they were the Hilton compared to a Roman prison. Here you have Paul and Silas thrown into, you know why they were thrown into prison? Because they were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are arrested, they're hauled off, they're put into prison, and at midnight, you know what the Word of God tells us they were doing? In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, you can read about this. We read that they were there praying and they were singing to God so that everyone in the jail heard their cries, they heard their songs and praising God and worshiping Him together. Friends, if Paul and Silas can worship God in a Roman prison, surely there's nothing that can prohibit us from worshiping Him. 
Worship's a lifestyle. Worship is what we're called to do, to honor God, to make much of God, to lift Him up. It's what we're called to do in our lives. We, we don't just come together like this in order to worship God. No, we bring our worship with us to this place so that collectively we might worship Him together. Worship is a lifestyle. It's habitual. But true worship, beyond all of this, is humble. Look at what Mary says. He has looked, in verse 48, he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. He's looked on the humblest state of his servant. Mary, Mary's not espousing there her attitude of humility. Mary is espousing that she really came from nothing and she has nothing to offer. Have you noticed how difficult it is for proud people to worship and to really be thankful? Proud people always think they deserve better. Proud people always feel entitled to what they have. And so it's difficult for a proud person to worship God and to be thankful to Him for what He has done. Proud people remember the wrongs that have been done against them, whether they are real or imagined, and they constantly mull over in their minds this mistreatment. I shouldn't have been treated this way. I didn't deserve this. And it fills them with the spirit of bitterness at some point. There's no room for that in worship. Humble. He's looked on the humblest state of his servant. In contrast to the proud, the humble know they deserve nothing. They recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They mourn over their own sinfulness. And they have a profound sense of gratitude toward God and love for Him that results in worship. Just think about Mary's humble estate socially. Mary lived in Nazareth. It, it, it was a little know-nothing town in a know-nothing region. I mean, th that's, that's why you, you, you remember the, the phrase, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, no, not really. Had a bad reputation. Nobody was from Nazareth. And if you were, you didn't admit it. You went somewhere else and said, I'm really from here, not from Nazareth. Here she was, far removed from society's elite in Judea and Jerusalem. Mary never became prominent. You know, even after the birth of Jesus, Mary never became prominent. In fact, the only New Testament reference to her after the cross was she was just one of the other disciples gathered together in Jerusalem. Nothing made of her socially. Look at Mary's humble estate spiritually as well. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Here was Mary, like everyone else, in need of a Savior. She had a high view of God. She had a low view of herself. That's, that's a foundation to worship. Just a humble awareness of her total unworthiness. God's marvelous grace to her. And it produced praise and worship from her grateful heart. 
I wonder, are you in similar company with Mary? Is your heart overwhelmed with the goodness of God toward you? I don't mean that maybe things haven't been tough. I don't mean that maybe things haven't been difficult. But let's be honest, God has still treated all of us more graciously than we deserve, hasn't he? Yeah, all of us. Is our heart overwhelmed at the goodness of God toward us? See, when you realize that, then you begin to praise and worship God as you should. That was the attitude that she brought to worship. There was an attitude of humility. There was an attitude of recognition in who God was. There was a habitual lifestyle of worship. Then look at the object of the worship. Again, in these two verses, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We read in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. You see, what makes worship great, understand this, what makes worship great is not the heart from which it flows. After all, let's be honest, aren't all of our hearts tainted with impure motives and selfish desires at times? Even in our worship, can our hearts sometimes get in the wrong place? Of course it can. Of course it can. We have all sorts of thoughts that pop into our mind about this or that. Things that seek to distract you from worship. Don't our hearts sometimes lead us astray? Of course they do. And so what makes worship great is not the heart from which it flows. What makes worship great is the object of what we are worshiping. You see, your worship will never be greater than what it is that you're worshiping. Never. Your worship can never be greater than what it is you are worshiping. Never. That's why idolatry is so damning to our lives spiritually. To worship anything other than the true and living God is idolatry, regardless of what we may call it. Regardless of how we may treat it in our lives, anything that we place before God, anything that causes us to disobey God in search for it, that has become idolatrous in our lives. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's prestige. I want people to think good of me. Maybe it's the approval of others. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe we've made an idol of our families. Maybe we've made an idol of sports activities. Maybe we've made an idol of our possessions. What are the idols in our lives? What is it that we worship? Mary's worship was squarely centered on her Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It was certain in her life that the most important thing to her was God. What do you worship? What do you worship? Would you take just a few moments and just say, Lord, show me my heart. Show me what it is that, that I am worshiping that keeps me from you. There's the object of her worship. Then look here at the reasons for her worship in these remaining verses. The latter part of verse 48 down to the end of our text this morning. Look at the reasons for her worship. She worships God for what God has done for her. Again, verse 48, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
his great acts towards Mary were so staggering, so wonderful, that she knew because of the grace she has received from God, all generations after her would consider her blessed. And isn't it the case that by virtue of what we do here this morning, we are fulfillment of what Mary recognized? She knew the goodness of God, and she knew, she knew that God would do something. She become the mother of the Messiah. And the reality that she, an unworthy sinner saved only by the grace of God, could bear the Son of God prompted her to worship. And listen, friends, that thought that God would stoop down to save wretched sinners like me and like you, that's going to be the theme of our worship throughout all eternity. When we look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and we read, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is the theme that we will carry through all eternity that God in His grace, that God in His mercy has done great things, not just for Mary, but for us as well providing salvation through Jesus Christ. But Mary comes along after that in verse 50, and, and she praises God for what God would do for others in the future. That's us. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Those who fear Him, those who stand in awe of Him, those who recognize His power and His majesty and who rejoice in that and who bow before His authority. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Is that you? When Mary says that, is she including you in this? Is she saying you're one of those ones Stand in fear of Him from generation to generation? Want the Lord's mercy? Stand in awe of His majesty and might. Bow before Him. Mary worships God for what God had done for His people in the past. She looks at herself and she worships God for what He's done in her life. She worships God for what He will do in the lives of His people in the future. She worships God for what He has done in the past. Friends, one of the greatest motivators we have to worship God for what He will do in the future is when we see His faithfulness and His righteousness in the past and we place our hopes upon that. We see how He has acted and we know that He will act similarly towards us who are his children. Look at the words that she uses here. She says he has scattered those who are, are proud. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. No doubt Mary would have remembered a former king of Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who stood within his palace and looked around and said, look at what I've done. Haven't I done all of this greatness? And he lifted himself up in arrogance, in pride, in haughtiness. And you remember what happened to him? All of his servants hearing the proclamation of his pride. And then God struck him 
God struck him with a disease, a mental disease. Boanthropy, it's called. Nebuchadnezzar believed himself to be a cow. He runs out into the field and he's eating grass with the livestock. Has God scattered the proud? Well, you better believe he can scatter the proud. He has done it and he will do it. We read in verse 2, he's brought, or not verse 2, excuse me. We read secondly that he's brought down the rulers from their thrones. So many of us are tempted like Nebuchadnezzar to stand in our puny little empires that we think that we have built. Maybe financial empires, social empires, uh, relational empires. We're tempted to stand up and say, is this not the great thing that I have built? God has a way of bringing us down. Has a way of bringing us down from the throne of our own arrogance and our pride and bringing us to a point of humility. We read next. He has exalted, the end of verse 40, 52, He has exalted those of humble estate. He's lifted up the humble. The proud, he's brought down. The humble, he has lifted up. A great example of this in Philippians 2, where Paul writes to us about Jesus, that Jesus, God in the flesh, humbled himself and served humanity to the point of dying on the cross. And in that humility, God lifted him up. God exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God has a way of exalting the humble. We read in verse 53, He's filled the hungry with good things. Jesus Himself taught about this. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes with which we are so familiar... Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friends, some of you, do you know why there is a longing in your soul? Do you know why there is a longing in your heart today? Because you are looking for everything else other than the things of God. And there's no filling there. There's no satisfaction there. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When our hunger and our thirst is for the righteousness of God to be displayed in us, God will satisfy that and He will bring that to us. What is it you hunger for? What is it that you really desire? You know, if you're you're like me, there's, there's probably been very few moments in your life that you've really been hungry. In fact, I would say in my life, there's never been a moment I've really been hungry. But if you've ever been even partially hungry, you know what it's like. Let's go get something to eat. Okay, where do you want to go? I don't care, I'm just hungry. I want something, anything. I'll go anywhere, I'm just hungry. Well, what kind of food? I don't care. I'm hungry, just give me food. That's all I want is food. I'm hungry. Do you not understand? I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Give me something to eat. Never go shopping when you're hungry, right? Because you suddenly become the proud owner of aisle six, you know. Don't ever do that because when we become hungry like that, the only thing we think about is fulfilling that need. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. 
the hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we do that, we'll be filled. Look at what he says beyond that. He has sent the rich away empty-handed. There at the end of verse 53. Jesus is not making a statement about those who are wealthy in this world, although it applies just like it does to all of us. It's not that wealth is bad. It's that when our wealth controls us, it becomes bad. When we make an idol out of our wealth, when we become more comfortable in our wealth than we do in the comfort of God himself, it then becomes a problem. He sends the rich away empty-handed. Jesus had an encounter just like this. We'll come to it later in Luke chapter 18 when this rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus recounts for him the commandments and and he says, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And this man in his arrogance, in his pride, looks at Jesus and says, oh, I've done all of that. Really, you have. Does anyone believe for a moment that he had? No, absolutely not. Jesus knows his heart is far away from salvation and far away from admitting his need and his dependence. So Jesus says, well, why don't you go sell everything you've got and give it away to the poor? The man's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus in Luke chapter 18 says this, Jesus seeing that he had become sad said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's a self-dependence. There's a self-dependence that comes in there that moves us away from dependence upon God and dependence upon the Savior that he gives in Jesus Christ. We continue to read verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary says, I I praise God for the promise of redemption that he spoke to Abraham and his offspring forever. Who are the offspring of Abraham? If if you're familiar with the Old Testament some, you know the, the name Abraham. God called him. He's referred to as the father of the faithful. God gave him a promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. The promise of a redeemer, of a Messiah to come. So is it only for the the Jews that God gives this promise of salvation? No. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. As Mary begins to recount God's faithfulness in his dealings of the past, she is reminded of God's covenant with Abraham that a Messiah would come and that that the the offspring of Abraham would be more numerous than the stars in the sky, than the sand of the seashore. And she remembers God's faithful covenant promise to Abraham and she rejoices that all who believe will be brought into that. Mary has looked at what God has done in the past and knows that this is how he will deal with her and with his people in the future and she has a foundation for her hope in all of it. Look at the overturning of the normal order here as you look through these. The proud are scattered. 
The rulers are deposed. The humble are lifted up. The hungry are filled. The rich go with nothing. And there is redemption that is given to the undeserving, just like Mary, just like me, just like you. Mary praises and worships God because of His mighty deeds, His goodness, His mercy, the redemption that He's provided. It's a beautiful song of praise. But friends, listen, this song of praise is a mere academic exercise in literature for you if it doesn't make any difference to you because you believe what Mary is saying. See, it's just a piece of literature. If you don't believe what Mary is saying within this, if we don't have a personal trust in the God who has done these mighty things, who has made these promises, if we don't have a personal faith in the Savior about whom these promises speak, then we don't have fellowship with God. If you have never trusted in the Savior of this song, you now today don't have fellowship with Him, but you can. There is eternal fellowship that is the basis of our worship of Him when we see His mercy and His love towards us. And we embrace that and we believe that. Our hearts return that in praise and worship to Him. So the obvious question becomes for us this morning, do you know Him? Do you believe Him? Do you trust Him, even like Mary did? And have you bowed your heart and your life before Him in recognition of the only means of redemption you have, the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Father, this morning we thank You again we thank you for this beautiful song of worship that Mary has sung, that Mary has given in recognition of who you are and what you have done. And we thank you, Father, that we have this beautiful example of what worship looks like. Father, I pray for us today that our hearts would be brought to a point of worship of you that we would realize there is nothing that matters more than you or besides you, and that we would bow our hearts and our lives before you. Father, I pray today for one, for several, perhaps for many here who have never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Their sin still weighs heavily upon them, and there is a separation between you and them that their sin is caused. And Father, I ask today, please, would you, would you open their hearts, Father? Would you allow them to see Jesus high and lifted up? And would you bring them to an understanding that their sin can be removed only as they come in faith to Him? As they confess their need for a Savior, their own sinfulness, and as they acknowledge that they, like all of us, are undeserving of your grace and mercy and that they might receive salvation today. For the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would bring us to a point of surrender, that we, like Mary, 
would worship you in who you are, in what you do, regardless of what that be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.